Hi there, everyone, and welcome back to Your World, Your Money. This is your host, Mary. Hi there. It's been a minute since we last chatted, and we are so happy to have you back with us. This summer, we have curated something special for you, a special summer mini-series on sports, mental health, and finance. We have professional athletes, sports psychologists, and financial experts from all walks of life to share their stories and perspectives. Learning and absorbing together with all of you, we're talking the truth, reality, and candid conversations behind mental health, sports, and money. We're going to talk about contracts, scholarships, competing obligations, costs of mental health, and much more. In this specially curated mini-series, we want to bridge the gaps in sports equity and equality. For an athlete throughout their entire career, health, mental health, and balance will determine their success or failure. Every choice we make along the way to our dreams and goals has a benefit and a cost, whether you can count that cost in dollars or not. In this mini-series, we are going to weave through money, mental health, and the world of professional athletes to understand how one of the biggest industries in the country has yet to catch up to the new equality status quo, and what the costs of this lagging equity and equality has on athletics as a whole, all the way down to the individual athlete fighting for their dreams and passions. Today, we sit down with coach Dylan Clark to understand high school athletes and that precarious moment in a young athlete's career where they must make a big decision to play at university or not, and all of the costs that come along with it. Hi, I'm Mary. I'm Nolan. I'm Lakita Ann. We are your hosts, and this is Your World, Your Money. We will be talking real money with real people in a real way. Because everyone deserves the opportunity and tools for freedom, financial or otherwise. Your World, Your Money is brought to you by Hangar Studios, a New York City-based recording studio, and Global Thinking Foundation, a global nonprofit working toward financial freedom and equality for all. This is Dylan Clark. He's a math and special ed teacher and has 17 years of experience as a coach, whether it's football, women's basketball, JV teams, or varsity. Coach Clark is now bringing his current team, the Pleasantville Panthers, his substantial breadth and scope of expertise. Dylan, hi, welcome. It's so nice having you with us today, uh, and we are so excited to chat with you. We would love for you to tell us a bit more about you and your coaching career. You coach the Pleasantville Panthers, your previous experience coaching women's basketball, me, and football at Horace Greeley High School, and many more. So can you share a bit about your coaching experience in general? Sure. So uh, I was lucky to have a mentor in my varsity football coach who knew I wanted to get into coaching. So as soon as I graduated... He asked me to be a a volunteer coach on the staff, and so I did that through college. And then my first paying job was actually as a middle school football coach, and then I got asked to be a a varsity assistant with the girls' basketball team at Horace Greeley High School. And since then, I've done middle school boys' basketball, I've done JV football, JV softball, JV boys' lacrosse, 
middle school girls lacrosse. And currently I'm doing JV football and varsity girls basketball. I've coached at, as Lauren mentioned, Horse Greeley High School and Pleasantville High School. I've also coached a little bit at Briarcliff High School. All three are in uh, Westchester County, New York. Currently I teach uh, English as a new language and math at Pleasantville High School. Uh, additionally, some special education classes. Previous to that, I did a leave replacement at my alma mater, our alma mater, Horace Greeley High School, and I've worked as teaching assistant through that. So I've seen kids through many lenses and different roles and different situations. So I feel like there's a lot of room for mentorship in this space, and there's a lot of room for you to, from your own perspective, from an older perspective, really be in spaces with very impressionable people on a daily basis, right? Especially in a space like sports. What are some of the things that motivate you to continue with your coaching career, specifically at the high school level? And what are some of the exciting opportunities or even challenges that you face while invested in this career? The number one thing, you first get into it, you think you're just going to be this tactile X and O's master. And what you quickly learn is, and what you taught me, Lauren, and you know, a lot of your teammates was like the values and the relationships. The team's only is going to go as far as the relationships and I feel like, you know, you talk to my ex-players, I think that's one of the things that I try to create memorable experiences for them and try to be a memorable person in their lives. So that enhances the experience as well. In terms of challenges, you know, I had to think hard of that because there's two sides here for me. So when I was a younger coach, you know, my mentor was an intense ex-military. So that was the first basis that I had. And when I first came to coaching girls, specifically Lauren and some of the other girls, I had to learn that that turned away people. So I had to reflect myself in order to advance as, in, as myself as a coach that I, you know, I couldn't be strict all the time. Most recently, I forget the year, you, know, you had in schools, at least in New York State, the DASA legislation for anti-bullying. So then I had to be mm. introspective and say to myself, you know, how intense can I be without crossing that line where I could be individually culpable or seen as committing, even though I don't think of it as, could it be perceived by a player of mine as I'm bullying them, right? Mm. So I had to really think down and I think there's a time and place for tone and voice still. And I just have to be smart at how I choose that. The mm. other thing I thought of challenges is as the further you go up in levels, coaching, the more logistics that there is, the more partnerships you have to work with. You have the parents, you have administration. It, it just becomes, just like with anything, you know, the farther you go up in something, the what you're doing doesn't change. You actually spend more time doing the other stuff mm -hmm. than the stuff that you originally thought you were going to do. Mm -hmm. Well, I actually love where you were taking that, like going into more of the logistics side of it and saying like, you know, now your life is a lot more of that. And one of the things that we wanted to dive into was talking about the realities of scholarships and, you know, the realities of getting scholarships or not, if Lauren had put in basketball and football, because that's your expertise. And so we had this question of just like, how do they work? But in addition to the like logistics that you're talking about, I'd also love if you'd share just from the experience of the athlete what is it like to go through making these decisions of whether to accept scholarships or whether to take out loans to go to school? So like share with us some of the realities and also, you know, as much as you can, like what do these athletes have to go through at such a young age to make these choices? Sure. So um, what I did look up was, you know, the number of scholarships in each sport mm. by level, 
you know, NCA Division One, NCA Division Two. There's a separate thing called NIIA, which is like its own NCAA, and then there's junior college, right? And even still at the Division Three level, while there's not formal academic scholarships, there are such things as need-based scholarships where it's not an athletic scholarship, I guess, by letter of the law, but it is a scholarship of form. So, it, you know, it's just amazing. And like I pulled up the uh, percentages and how low the percentages are to actually go from, let's say, high school to even overall to the NCAA. So any level of NCAA, the percentage for a men's basketball player based on that number of high school participants is 3.5% for a man. For a woman, it's 3.9%. So it's even just to be on an NCAA team is minuscule. Now take that up a notch and, you know, basketball is one of the few sports where they can afford because they are a revenue generating sport. They have a limit where you would say one scholarship per one kid. But a lot of these other sports, they just have a set amount and they have to piecemeal it. So you talk about, you know, a kid might say who plays lacrosse is on scholarship, but maybe they're getting like a, a third. Like a men's division one lacrosse team gets 12.6 scholarships, but those rosters could be 40 kids. So you, not everyone's getting a scholarship who's on that sideline. Hmm. I have a quick question for you too. <laughs> While you're also experiencing a level of coaching and a level of teaching specifically in math, A lot of what we're talking about for this initiative, summer of sports and athletics, is this idea of finance coming into the conversation in different spaces that we're involved in. Have you or can you speak to a bit about what you've noticed from the conversations that you're having about money and finance in the classroom with athletes or even athletes who are trying to be recruited? Like, is there a level of advice or a story that you could tell us about that? You know, I was contemplating what's going on now in, not to be political, but this battle over critical race theory and how we always in education choose to battle over controversial topics rather than come together and make sure we're doing to the most efficient and best possible the things that we all agree on. So things like computer science has become extremely popular now in in the K-12 school system. And I think financial literacy should be right there at the top of it. I happen to teach a math, uh, a population that's more a special education student side, but even as early as ninth grade, I'm teaching what a debit card is with inequalities, not to make sure you over withdrawal and what happens if you over withdraw in terms of fees and how that operates. Um, so I think we're doing a nice job in terms of sprinkling it in, but I, I would love to see it be more prominent. And a teacher in my school uses EverFi which is a great resource for K through 12. It had modules for financial literacy. So we like to talk about controversial things and mandate certain things, but rather than just come together for the, the strong commonalities, let's, let's get our energies there first and make sure those are being done well. You know, maybe that will take enough energy that then you, people will actually collaborate on the differences and the controversial topics. With the students that you have that have to make these financial decisions so young, like we're asking young adults to make big financial decisions that affect their lives. And I'm thinking specifically within sports, so like choosing scholarships or choosing loans if they didn't get a scholarship to play. So what role do you think maybe a lack of financial literacy or the presence of it that you've just seen with some of your athletes, what role does that play? And I mean, we know the answer at the foundation. Of course, it makes a big difference. But tell us from your perspective how that makes a big difference. 
when I reflected on uh, that, I was initially was thinking, you know, socioeconomic background and how it could affect this either way, right? And so I thought on both ends, whether you come from a wealthier side or a less wealthier side, if you're constantly playing sports and you're not learning about the financial literacy part of it, you don't really grasp the value of $10, right? So for me growing up where I grew up, I was blessed where, you know, my parents said, your job is to be a student. And if I need $20, I would get $20. And on the flip side, if you're on lower socioeconomic, maybe the family doesn't have disposable income that, that can go. And so if you're always wrapped up going from tournament to tournament, practice to practice, are you truly learning the value of what $10 is and what can that get you? Or are you constantly mm. just, it becomes this accepted behavior where you just think that the well's never going to dry up. I had four girls graduate, my four captains, all of them played three sports. So what are they working? They're working over the summer or they're making money as a camp counselor. And, you know, hopefully they were able to learn how to stretch a camp counselor stipend and tips throughout the whole school year. Because when you have three sports, it's hard to, who's hiring you for a part-time job. Or on the likewise, I've never had to deal with somebody who was an athlete that maybe had to step back from a sport in order to take a part-time job to supplement the family. So I think on both ends of the spectrum, you have this one where, just to bring it full circle, if you don't have disposable income, you never learn managing money because you never have it. And on the flip side, if you come from a family with money and you're constantly getting $20, you don't really understand what that means. When we ask about these, these are kids, right? So kids can be approached for recruiting as early as, I want to say I got my first letter when I was 14 years old. Right. And then that, that just keeps going. So it's a matter of, you know, how involved your parents are, how involved anyone, any coach, your coaches are, your mentors are. Can you speak to any of the challenges that you've noticed that comes into play when students, kids, children, young athletes are stepping into this space of where they have to make major financial decisions, major financial professional decisions, career decisions, right? How can you think both about your career and just your scholarship? Because out of all the percentages that you said, like it, it just speaks so well to it because so few of these athletes are going to get a scholarship. So few of these athletes are going to go on to play professionally. And then so few of these athletes are then going to play till they're 40. You hit it right on the nail. We can't be holding back and, you know, waiting to do financial literacy and mental health work when it's senior year, that's too late. The -hmm. process has already begun and gone through. You know, these kids as early as freshman year make a decision. um, You know, someone's gotten in the air and told them that they have some level of ability and then they have to go and pursue it from there. In terms of the mental health standpoint, it's an extreme sacrifice. I mean, if if you're pursuing something and it's out of season, you're talking about going to tournaments, trying to play on these club and AAU teams in order to keep up your skill level, compete against the best, Mm -hmm. while also being able to be seen by coaches. Like I had a girl who I went to high school with who, you know, she played three sports. She stopped playing field hockey and basketball in order to focus on softball. But on the weekends in the fall, she was flying to a softball tournament. Hmm. She was missing out on that true high school experience. In order to, to get this, you know, she got a scholarship to Stanford softball. But the sacrifice that these kids have to go through at a young age of you're just not going to have a typical teenage experience is a daunting decision and not one that should just be left for the child to be unilaterally made. Something that immediately jumped out to me was, well, did she understand how expensive that was? Were there other 
young women that are was as talented that couldn't do that like immediately the thought that popped into my brain was whether or not the athlete understands like what they're being given that's a lot of pressure at least to me that's a lot of pressure whether I realize or not how much those plane tickets cost because I'm however old I am Mm. at the time I know that that's a cost I know that that's being spent and I know that I have teammates that can't do that yeah I mean I don't know if she knew the exact financial ramifications, but I would like to think that, you know, her parents made her aware of what this was going to cost. And, you know, I think, you know, going back to before, it depends on what, if you come from lower socioeconomic and you're told that this is your ticket out, I think you're willing to do more things that are atypical so that you can, at some point, lead a quote unquote typical life. Mm-hmm. I think when you, are coming from a higher socioeconomic background, I think it's much more difficult to give up those typical experiences because of the luck that you were born into of your family and and wealth. But I mean, I guess, you know, not being a parent myself, I've never had to sit down with a kid and say, okay, your parent paid this much money for this. And the problem is when parents, you know, become over control and, and want sort of an exchange where they need to justify this cost to themselves as they put on their business hat and do a cost benefit analysis of their child's experience. And just to add on to mental health, I know there is a big movement now in schools for socio-emotional learning. I mean, we're sort of in this socio-emotional learning era, if you will. And so that's being started at Pleasantville High School as early as ninth grade. I mean, working on... Um, DBT and those kind of self-monitoring thoughts. And it's integrated into English class. It's integrated into ninth grade history where we were bringing in pre-pandemic an outside person to conduct these exercises with the kids. So as early as 14, again, but we're blessed to have the money to be able to do it. I don't know if you told me what's the experience of a 14-year-old inner city Baltimore. I don't know if they're bringing in somebody or, or where the outlet is for that child to have a similar experience. And for our listeners, can you tell us what that is? A lot of our listeners might not know. DBT. You know, when I was growing up, it was metacognition. It was thinking about your own thoughts and just Mm. breathing exercises. If you feel yourself feeling a lot of anxiety, what can you do to sort of rein in your thoughts and sort of change the course of where your thoughts are going so that you Mm. are um, in a more positive mindset? Mm. So you were mentioning just a little bit ago, and I want to lead into it a little bit more about kind of the tribe that these athletes have around them, whether it's like parents or coaches, or, you know, ministers, like whatever is in this tribe that they have. And there's a lot of pressure there. And there's a lot of cultural expectations there, again, whether it's coming from parents or schools or society or from church. And just to open up the conversation before we hone it in a bit more, what are some of the impressions you have on what those cultural pressures can do to an athlete? And what would you want to change? Like, what would you love to see shift in some of these pressures? One of the big things for me, I'm just speaking from a basketball standpoint, is I would like to see less pressure to do outside teams in order to hmm. expose oneself. I think, you know, AAU is great. It had its place at a time, but with things like YouTube and stuff like that, I think there's ways to where the athlete can take back control where maybe they don't feel the pressure to play for one of these teams in order to you know, be seen. And we can get to a day where we sort of take out that middleman 
Hmm. You know, that's where you hear about the nefarious stories and whatnot, sort of really wild west where there was no oversight. And maybe that's um, one culturally. Hmm. Yeah. And just listening to you say that, I immediately think those athletes would have a little bit more of a quote unquote life. Like they potentially would be able to pursue other passions or to find a little bit more balance for themselves. Right. Exactly. Mm. I think, you know, this idea of, you know, every weekend you're drumming out some to a different state or whatnot to play a tournament can add up in in a child's life in terms of having community friends and whatnot. The opposite spectrum would be if a kid comes from a, a dangerous neighborhood and they're able to participate in these things, they're actually getting out of the dangerous thing into a more safe environment. So these things always operate in a spectrum. It's never just in a vacuum. And uh, Yeah. So I would say even like for counter argument too, because I see both sides, right? Like when you hear it, you're like, yes, like, you know, I would have loved a few hours back in my weekend. But to that same point, with that traveling and being on different teams outside of your one high school team, the people that you're surrounded by financially are just different. And I think that plays a huge role in how you then learn how to process money, how to process Mm -hmm. thought. You can look around and be like, okay, my family is not concerned with paying for this next meal. But when the check comes around, another family seems a little more nervous. Like even just as a child, as a teenager, like you're processing that thought. Whereas if you're surrounded by people who can all do what you can do as easily as you can do it financially. And Lauren, I love that you're you're mentioning that because something that I keep coming back to is these all, and I, I played lacrosse at university, but I wasn't on scholarship for it. I was on academic scholarship. And so when I think back to that, and I was very young when I went to university, I was 16. And so When I think back on that, these things were massive pressures in my life. And so as we're talking about these things, I just keep thinking about the pressures that this must be for a young adult and what kind of state that that would put them in making these decisions. Again, we want to put a financial lens on it, but that goes for any big decision. If you're 15 years old, 14 years old, and you're under all of these pressures, like Lauren, what you just shared with me is incredible Like to have those exposures, but no matter which side of it you come from, to me, that's a lot of pressure, isn't it? And then to have to be making these big decisions. So coming back to that like culture and expectation question, perhaps it's not necessarily something that we can change, but Dylan, what would you love to be able to do at your school that could make a difference for some of the pressures that these athletes are under? Because they're already under a loss just from their sport. And then you mix everything else into it. And as adults, we're quote unquote supposed to be able to handle that. Well, these kids are children. Right. My first year, I was a head coach at Pleasantville. I brought in an ex-teammate of Lawrence to speak to the team, Ashley Rosenberg, who was a girl who played three sports in high school. She played four years of varsity of each sport. And I asked her to talk about, like, you know, she went on to be a valedictorian. What was your experience like doing this, accomplishing this? And she was like, you know, I had to sacrifice sleep during the week and I had to catch up with sleep on the weekends in order to accomplish this. And so one of the things I've thought of is like, especially with the advancement in technology and stuff like that is if schools eliminated homework and that allowed for, I still fight this battle with my girls now about getting to bed by 10, 11 o'clock, right? You would think it's like the hardest thing in the world to do. But, We're you know, grownups and it's still the hardest thing in the world to do. <laughs> but when you're on the school schedule and of course. You know, the importance of eight hours of sleep and you know, maybe that's something where as we go into the social emotional era, we'll look and say, 
kids who want to pursue academics at a higher level who take those honors classes, APs, you can expect homework. But if you're just fine being in the typical class, being on the typical path, maybe we help those kids out by significantly reducing the out-of-school homework so that they can do these things, maybe get the part-time job, which helps them their start into financial literacy, pursue another interest that's not offered at school, be able to get that extra hour, hour and a half of sleep. And what would that lifestyle change bring about? Why um, I started thinking about the loopholes and the gaps in the conversation about financial literacy, specifically for athletes at the professional level, was going to this conversation of, again, how we're having these flashbacks to how we processed um, different levels of our own financial experience. So, Dylan, from your perspective as a coach, as a former athlete, as a current teacher, um, what are some of the things more specifically about financial literacy that you can speak to? Um, again, we just spoke about how athletes, a small percentage of them will go on to do the sport that they're doing professionally. Like even Ashley, I love her. She played four varsity sports, but I'm pretty sure she's not playing professionally right now. So like, what is the cost benefit that's coming from just in our values for what we choose to do at such a young age? Hmm. Well, two points. I mean, everyone has a choice of what to do with time. So People got to choose for themselves how they're going to allocate time in terms of the financially literacy part. I mean, something that I got to spend some time on now, I don't know if I'll ever coach this caliber of player, but the whole idea of name, image, and likeness and the recent Supreme Court decision with the NCAA really blows up this financial thing because now you're talking someone who you have kids now graduating a semester early to start college, what would be their typical second semester senior year of high school, they're in college. And so right from January of their senior year, if they're good enough, they could be available for name making money off a of name agent's likeness. So now how are we teaching from the financial literacy standpoint? Again, maybe starting at sophomore year, junior year, what's the finances behind that? So that when they do become a college athlete, that they are prepared to profit off of their name image likeness and not be taken advantage of. Mm. We were just reading an article and we're actually going to be focusing a lot on this at the foundation about a young athlete and she's walking into five figures in her freshman year. She's walking right into this because of her skill, of course, but also her social media and her presence and all of these other things. And when I think about that young woman I don't know what financial literacy she's had. I don't know what money conversations she's had with mom and dad. But that is a big, massive contract to be signing. And I wonder if young adults have the wherewithal to sign those contracts like that. Well, I mean, and also, again, I don't I don't know the specifics of the law. Is a minor allowed to sign that contract? Or mm-hmm. it, because of their age, does the parent have to sign for them? Which then brings up the question of, is the parent forcing the kid to do this to make money to maybe pay back from previous years of expenditure of money Hmm. who signs on the dotted line when the kid's a minor is it the person's quote-unquote agent who's negotiating the business deal is it the parent who has to sign i remember when one of the kobe bryant documentaries when he was drafted he was actually 17 and when he was signing his contract out of high school his parents had to validate the contract yeah so i'm wondering about if that's what's occurring now with all these name image likeness for student athletes who are going into freshman year that may not be 18 hmm. and cannot sign for themselves. 
Yeah, she just turned 18. Uh, Olivia Dunn, you both probably know who that is. She just turned 18. I, but I had to look, and that's a really good point mm. to bring up. Hmm. So I just thought of an interesting question that I'm going to throw out there. Dylan, when you were choosing to go into your career of being a coach, did you think about the lens and like the bigger picture of what that would mean for your own finances as a former athlete? And then you have this interesting duo career and job as a teacher and a coach. When you made that decision, what was that like? Yeah, so uh, I initially thought of the pros and cons of, you know, I thought it was going to be football initially, but do I go into high school teaching and coaching or do I pursue college coaching? And talking about the financial literacy piece, the amount of moves that college coaches have to make, I mean, they're basically on year contracts and they don't know where they're going to be the next year. And Mm -hmm. so is that the kind of lifestyle and, you know, how, how would that affect me emotionally versus being in one location and knowing when the next paycheck's coming in and not having that uncertainty for me was much more important than being the head coach of Alabama, mm. being on the cover of Sports Illustrated. That was, and that's where I sort of fell into the high school level. And Dylan, just to ask, and it doesn't have to be too in-depth, but that's a perspective like in making that choice that very candidly a lot of young adults don't have they don't think about the financial side of it we wish they would but they don't mm. and so just to ask like where did that come from for you did that was that something your parents instilled in you was it because you had to work growing up like you made a choice a lot of young adults don't consider well I started volunteering at a high school. So, you know, while I was still studying at college, I was volunteering and you go through the four years, you got to start planning what's next. And so my choice was, I I knew I was going to have certification as a teacher. Did I want to maybe pursue a graduate assistantship at the college level, see what that was like or not. And I felt ultimately that I didn't have enough connections to get into the graduate assistant positions that I would have wanted at the time. And I, I had a nice setup at our alma mater. So I sort of just went with that as the foundation of, you know, and also, like I said, I look, I didn't really want to have to move a thousand times. Hmm. As we get closer to the end of our interview, I am wondering, Dylan, for you, what are some of the financial resources that are available for high school athletes and post high school athletes? Hmm. I mentioned Ever5, which we use as a teaching curriculum. And this was one I kind of somewhat struggled with. I'm sure that, how about something, you know, bringing back to mental health, I'm sure you could go on Players Tribute and I'm sure some players written a diary about losing all their money or, Hmm. you know, rather than it be sort of this, the quote unquote textbook on how to do things, maybe it's about accumulating and reading blog posts about personal stories enough to understand mistakes that were made and learn from those mistakes rather than get caught up in what the technical term of something is relative to the topic of financial literacy. People still do the stock market game for understanding investing. But the thing about the stock market game is you have to have capital to invest in the stock market, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't have capital to invest in the stock market, the stock market game somewhat loses its value. Even I think there's low tech things as if a kid writes out all their costs for a week and where's the money coming from? Right. It doesn't have to be this amazing high tech solution, but this running financial diary of, I spent this year, collect the receipts, tallying that up, comparing that with, okay, my first potential job could be this per hour. I'm going to get this much taken out with taxes. Just starting that conversation, I think, can be eye-opening 
to an individual at a young age. Hmm. And just continuing on with the conversation around resources and, you know, what's available, what would you say to any athlete out there that's in high school that's maybe thinking about scholarship or taking loans to go to school? What would you say to them are some resources that they should absolutely look into? And then on the other side of that, what resources would you love to see? Like, what do you wish was out there? Depending on the quality of student, I know for to be a scholarship athlete, you have to clear what's called the NCAA Clearinghouse. You got to make sure that your grades are good enough for you to be eligible to receive a scholarship. Mm. And then if they're not, you know, what's the junior college level like in order to receive those scholarships? I think going to the NCA or doing a Google search about understanding the limits. And so understanding that, okay, if I go here and I get a third scholarship because they don't have enough scholarships to give one per member of the team, what am I actually receiving relative to the total cost of attendance? How am I going to make up that difference? Do I come from a background where I have, you know, your, your parents or guardians set up a college 529 savings account where you had something to pull from to offset the initial costs? Am I going to have to ask the coach for need-based scholarship if I'm going to go at the Division three level? Am I prepared to have that conversation and say, if you want me to attend your college, this is what it will take in terms of how much I will need per year, whether via combination of student loans or need-based scholarships? I think that would be the first thing I would look at. Mm. And if I can ask as well, just just because this is such a cool part of what we're doing with this mini-series, that same question about resources and such things like that, and I know you've mentioned some already, but um, perhaps around mental health and just like keeping an athlete's balance. Oof. Well, I mean, <laughs> first off, Kevin Love has done tremendous work writing about his mental health. I think whether it's reading about other athletes' experiences with it and maybe finding one that you connect with, and then usually these people are ambassadors of certain organizations that can then help. That's where I would go to probably first. I mean, not everyone has the, you know, bringing this back to also finances. It's not like, although for years as part of insurance policies, mental health was sort of, you know, not mentioned. Now that it's become more mm -hmm. in vogue, maybe I don't know what resources are available out there in terms of being able to use insurance to pay for maybe a therapist or someone to talk to in your life who's not your mother or sibling that you just need to talk to. You know, I have a mom who's a clinical psychologist. So I, the idea of mental health is something that has always been a part of my life. And I've seen the change from, you know, insurance won't cover it. So then you have to pay out of pocket. Well, if you're paying out of pocket, you need to have disposable income to pay out of pocket. Mm. So then who actually goes and gets the help that they need for mental health? The wealthy. To now where it's becoming more in vogue and there's many more outlets and I think it's a much more prominent part of uh, insurance policies now. Hmm. Just also to bring it back, I think, you know, Lauren had a tremendous decision her high school senior year in terms of mental health and financial hmm. literacy, where her two choices where she was going to decide to pursue academics and basketball. One was at William and Mary in Virginia on a full scholarship, and the other was MIU with D3, where there was no quote unquote athletic scholarship. And I remember having texts back and forth with Lauren, especially when she went on her visit to William & Mary and just saying like, you know, I just don't fit in here. That I don't see myself fitting in here. And so mm -hmm. you're talking about a person turning down mm. the athletic scholarship in order to go to a place that would have been 
obviously by turning down a scholarship more expensive and thus because she felt it was more for her. And that although she didn't continue with it, I think she had a great time in terms of the friends she made on the team. And I think overall her college experience and her mental health was better for mm-hmm. choosing that choice. Mm. But I also do want to say like, thank you for remembering that. And it's just like, you know, when I think about that too, as a decision, I was in a very fortunate place of where my parents could say, take the money out of it. What do you want? And I don't take that lightly. There's just so many ways to look at it. And now I'm in debt and I'm like, what would my life be like if I took the scholarship? But mental health wise, like I would make that decision every time again, because I only ended up playing basketball for two years of my college experience. So yeah, it's a great point. Thank you so much for coming on and and chatting with us and and sharing this perspective. I think it's so important. Thank you. Glad, glad. Anywhere you can hop out, let me know. Thanks for joining us today. As always, we love having you listen in with us, and we are always excited to hear your thoughts, ideas, and contributions. Feel free to drop us a voice note or share your athletic journey in an email to us. We actually really love to hear it. We'll be back next week, and until then, happy summer. We'll chat soon. You've been listening in with Your World, Your Money. You can find us at ywympodcast.com and stay updated on Instagram at Global Thinking Foundation USA. Be sure to rate and review us and you can reach us with questions or thoughts at hi at ywympodcast.com. Our thanks again to Hangar Studios and Global Thinking Foundation. Thanks, friends. Happy money making. We'll see you next time.